You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. So open our Bibles to the Scripture reading this morning. This morning we read from Daniel chapter 4. And the text for the sermon is found in verses 28 to 37. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are His signs! How mighty His wonders! His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it the beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, Cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal, till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men, and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. 
Belteshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air. You, O king, are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live like the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, O king. And this is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord, the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Here we come to the text for the sermon, which is from here to the end of the chapter. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back His hand or say to Him, What have you done? The same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, 
praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Beloved congregation, Christ our Lord. That chapter that we just read from the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 4, is an entirely unique passage in the Bible. This chapter is a letter to the world, also a letter to us, from an ancient king. You know, sure, elsewhere in the Bible we do have letters and writings of ancient kings, but nowhere do we have a letter from an ancient king written to us. Nowhere other than here in Daniel. Even more remarkably, this isn't a letter from a, an Israelite king, but from a Gentile, a Babylonian king. Moreover, as if that wasn't enough to inspire some awe in us, we have a letter from an ancient Gentile king written to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so what we read here in Daniel 4 is not merely a word to us from King Nebuchadnezzar. Most importantly of all, it's a word from God. A word from God that takes the form of a letter from an ancient Babylonian king. It's amazing. The first verse makes it clear that Nebuchadnezzar was indeed writing to a general audience. You could say that this is an open letter. The king wants to tell everyone of all that the Most High God had done for him and in his life. In verse 3, he has words of praise for this God. And then verse 4 launches into the account of how he came to these words of praise. It started with a dream. A dream that couldn't be interpreted by the king's wise men by his astrologers, enchanters, magicians, and so on. And Daniel was called for, and he came, and he was able to interpret the dream. It was a dream of a tree being chopped down. Even though Daniel didn't want to be negative before King Nebuchadnezzar, the plain fact was, and he couldn't hide it, the dream was about Nebuchadnezzar. The dream, however, also held out hope. If and when the king repented, he would have his kingdom restored to him. In verse 27, right before our text, Daniel encouraged Nebuchadnezzar to repent immediately. The possibility was held out that he could avoid the fulfillment of this prophetic dream. Like many other prophecies in Scripture, it was conditional. It was meant to be a warning to King Nebuchadnezzar. It could be that King Nebuchadnezzar listened to Daniel's advice, at least for a time. But soon, the dream was fulfilled. As was prophesied through this dream, God laid King Nebuchadnezzar low. And we'll see that he did that not merely to make a point to the king, but to make a point to God's people back then, and by extension, also to us here today in 2006. The point was that God was teaching His people the right way to think about Him and also the right way to think about themselves. Well, one year after Daniel had made his prophecy, Nebuchadnezzar was out on the roof of his palace. 
Now we hear that and we might think that's somewhat strange, but we have to keep in mind that roofs in that area of the world are often flat. And people, even today, in that part of the world, which today, of course, is Iraq, they often use their roofs as part of their living space. So the king was up there on his roof, part of his living space, and he was looking over his great city of Babylon. What did he see? Well, he would have seen incredible architectural beauty. Artistic beauty. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was there in that city of Babylon. The Hanging Gardens. If you don't know what the Hanging Gardens are, you can go home, you can look it up in an encyclopedia. You can also look it up on a website like Wikipedia. The Hanging Gardens. Very beautiful terraced gardens there in the city of Babylon. Not only were there the Hanging Gardens, there were also a great deal many beautiful buildings. Nebuchadnezzar is remembered in antiquity primarily for being a renovator and for being a builder. The ancient walls of Babylon were another one of his spectacular building achievements. And of course, we can't forget the fact that Babylon was a mighty military and political power in the 7th century before Christ. Now knowing all that, if you were coming at this situation from a, a worldly perspective, and you saw Nebuchadnezzar sitting there on the, the roof of his house, you could hardly blame him for looking out over all this beauty and, and for feeling proud of himself. Unbelieving people then and now would look at this situation and they would probably encourage Nebuchadnezzar to have these thoughts and to say words like, Go ahead, king. Feel proud of yourself. You deserve it. You did all this work. You're the man. You should get the glory for this. Go ahead. You need to build up your self-esteem. Not that Nebuchadnezzar would have really needed this encouragement, just like most of us don't need it either. The words of verse 30, they just flowed naturally out of his heart. What did he say there? Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? In the original Aramaic, of this verse, the, the king is even more emphatic about bringing glory to himself. Translate it literally, it reads something like, Is not this the great Babylon which I, I have built? I hadn't even finished speaking when a voice fell down on him from heaven. It was God speaking and declaring that the prophetic judgment was now to be executed. His kingdom was going to be taken away. People wouldn't have anything to do with him. He'd live with the animals out in the field and, and eat grass like them. God tells him that seven times will pass by before Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges God's sovereign power. Now the meaning of seven times is ambiguous. It could be any period of time involving seven, but more likely longer rather than shorter, as we'll see in a few moments. So perhaps seven months or maybe even seven years. Now it's worth noting further that the reason for this judgment 
is not explicitly given. We should ask, why not? Well, probably because it doesn't take too much thought to figure it out. Especially if we keep in mind that this book of Daniel as a whole was originally composed for God's people. God's people know enough about God from elsewhere in the Bible to know that Nebuchadnezzar's pride is a sure recipe for judgment. It's simply not in God's character to tolerate a man lifting himself up in this way. And given the address of this particular letter from Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples everywhere, we could also make the argument that all peoples everywhere know that there is a supreme, most high God. Read Romans 1. And if He is really the the most high God, and He is holy and just, then to take on heirs like Nebuchadnezzar did, that that can't be a wise or, or a good thing to do. So God leveled His judgment on Nebuchadnezzar for his monumental hubris. Immediately after this, all that had been said came to pass. Indeed, Nebuchadnezzar became an outcast. He looked at, he looked and he acted like an animal. He was out in the fields, he was eating grass like the cattle. That's a documented medical condition called boanthropy. Boanthropy, though rare, still happens. God afflicted Nebuchadnezzar with this mental illness which made him appear and act as someone who was not really human, less than a man. One commentator summarizes what happened here by saying, a man who thinks he is like a god must become a beast to learn that he is only a human being. Nebuchadnezzar's hair grew very long, and so did his nails. And again, those things are suggestive that the seven times that we're talking about here are longer rather than shorter periods of time. Well, in verse 34, we find that the end of the seven times came around, and finally the king lifted up his eyes towards heaven. That's another way of saying that he finally cried, Uncle! And he acknowledged God's sovereign power. The king realized that Nebuchadnezzar is not the king of kings and lord of lords, but a mere man. The result was that his sanity or his understanding was returned to him. This indicates that the king was indeed mentally ill. He was incapable of carrying out his office. The kingdom had been taken away from him. Well, verse 34 goes on to tell us the first thing he did when he was back to his own mind. And that was to praise the Most High. Notice the words that the king uses to describe God. He calls Him the Most High. It's not just a manner of speaking. This is a recognition of who God is and what He's like. He's not only the Most High. He's also the immortal God. The One who lives forever. It's this God that Nebuchadnezzar honors and glorifies. He acknowledges that His dominion is eternal. That His kingdom extends through all generations of men. In verse 35, Nebuchadnezzar states that before this God, people are nothing. This God does whatever He wants with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can stand in His way and no one can question Him. 
And the result of all this praise, according to verse 36, was that Nebuchadnezzar was able to get back into the royal saddle, able to start ruling as a king again. His kingdom was returned to him. Most likely while he was ill, his staff had been carrying out his rule. But now he was back, and he grew in might and power. In verse 37, he acknowledges the King of heaven as worthy of praise. God does what is right, and His ways are just. And then he adds a sort of summary at the end of his letter, right at the end of verse 37, and those who walk in pride, He is able to humble. So what was God teaching His people Israel through this letter and through this story of a Babylonian king? Well, to answer that, we need to remind ourselves briefly of the historical context. For instance, why was Daniel in Babylon? He didn't decide to go there on a vacation after all. He hadn't applied for a new job. He wasn't making a career move to to Babylon. No, against his will, he was brought captive to Babylon, along with many others of the people of Israel. This is part of what we call the Babylonian exile, a major historical event in the Old Testament. Because of the sins of the people, God brought His chastising hand down upon them. Because of their blatant, and unrepentant covenant breaking, they were punished by being removed from the promised land. Nevertheless, God promised to preserve a faithful remnant. Even through all this adversity, there would always be a number of people who are holding to the promises, who are living in faith, who are living in expectation of God's deliverance. For that remnant, preserved by God's grace, this chapter of Daniel, and our text too, would have been comfort for them. Their world had been turned upside down. Everything in the promised land that they had known and and loved had been stripped away from them. They'd been shipped off to Babylon. It seemed like the world was out of control. But in what happened with King Nebuchadnezzar, the faithful among God's people would be reminded that He is still in control. He is still the sovereign God, the God who can lift up and the God who can cast down. God has not been emasculated. And that gives hope for the future. Because those same prophecies which predicted the exile also predicted a return and a glorious fulfillment of all of God's promises. We think particularly of the messianic promises in in Isaiah and elsewhere. God still has the power. And He will be faithful. He can and He will bring it to pass. And for us today too, we might sometimes wonder whether things are out of control in our lives. Maybe maybe it seems that our lives spin from one thing to another, maybe even from one disaster to another. We can look back in history and we can see what kind of God we have. How did He act during the time of Nebuchadnezzar? You might say, that was such a long time ago. But we know from His Word that God does not change. We know from His Word that He kept His promises to bring a Messiah. 
And through His mighty work in our lives, we have believed in this Messiah. We know the wonderful promises that God has given to us through Him. And so let me ask you, will He ever relinquish His sovereign power over this world? Will He ever give up on you and just let your life reel out of control? What is God like? If we take our text seriously, we know that He is a personal God who cares. He is a personal God who has the sovereign power. And the knowledge of this is meant to give us comfort and hope. Even more so when we reflect on the King of kings and Lord of lords, Christ Himself. Here's the great King who rules us sovereignly by His Word and Spirit. Here's the great King who bought us for Himself with His own precious blood. Here's the great King who defends and preserves us in our salvation. We look at Christ, we see the great King who will return to judge the living and the dead. People of God at the time of the exile, they caught a glimmer of Him through the promises of the Old Covenant. Brothers and sisters, we are richly blessed with the full HDTV picture of who He is and what He's like. So rich we are. And if they were comforted with a mere glimmer, how much more shouldn't we be comforted with the full picture of who our Redeemer is? Christ reveals to us the sovereign God and His power exercised in love. All the kings of the earth are in His hand. All the peoples and nations are under His control. All the events that happen in our daily lives are under His dominion. Even the mundane. Even the little things. He promises to work all things for our good. Sovereign power exercised in love. And that's comfort. It's in those ways that this text brings us to think in the right way about who God is and what He has done and is doing. But this text also brings God's people to think about themselves in the right way. Let's now consider how it does that. We know from our text that Nebuchadnezzar was humbled in spectacular fashion. At the end of the episode, we see the great Babylonian king down on his knees, uttering praises for the Most High God. Now, some have read this passage and, and spoken of Nebuchadnezzar's conversion as if through this episode he had come to a saving faith. That's probably saying too much. Here's a couple of thoughts. We don't read that Nebuchadnezzar abandoned the worship of other gods. Yes, he, he may have acknowledged the true God and praised Him as the one who is sovereignly in control, but nowhere do we read a confession that He is the one and only God. I think it would be difficult to speak of a saving faith in that context. Second, we don't have any reference here to Nebuchadnezzar believing the Messianic promises. A saving faith in the Old Testament period requires faith just like it does today. But for them, it was faith in the promises. Now, perhaps that faith was there. Perhaps he did come to that faith. But the point is that we don't read about it 
here. To say that Nebuchadnezzar had saving faith, that just goes too far. It's simply speculation. What we do know for certain is that he did acknowledge God's power and sovereignty. And let there be no doubt about it, that was a good thing. And the fact that this letter is addressed to other peoples and nations indicates that Nebuchadnezzar, he also wanted to share what he had learned about God. He didn't learn so much about God's salvation, but he did learn something about God's character and who he was in relation to this God. In that way, what he discovered was a sort of preparation for the gospel message, even if it wasn't the gospel message itself. In this limited, restricted sense, we can speak about Nebuchadnezzar's letter as being a sort of missionary letter. The Babylonian king is telling the other nations to get down and humble themselves before this great God. And we know that such a posture opens hearts to receive the good news about a God who saves. But of course, this missionary letter, if we can call it that, was included in the book of Daniel and and intended to be read by God's people in exile. What did it say to them about how they should think of themselves? Here again, we need to think about the historical context. Mentioned earlier that it was the sins of the people that led to the exile. God didn't arbitrarily decide to do this to His people. There were a lot of reasons, a lot of history leading up to it. For our purposes, just consider the sin of pride. Zephaniah 3 and many other passages in the prophets inform us that the pride of the people was a major reason why they were exiled. They thought very highly of themselves. You could say they had lots of self-esteem, and that led them to do whatever they wanted. God's Word? Forget it. We can ignore it. And the result was that self-willed worship reigned supreme. People did whatever they wanted when it came to the worship of God. The Almighty Self was lifted up in the place of Almighty God. Self became an idol. So God sent them into Babylon, out of the promised land, away from the temple, out of His presence, the place where He made His name dwell. As they lived in Babylon, some of the people repented and they called out for deliverance. As mentioned earlier, there was a faithful remnant, but there were others who continued in their sinful and prideful ways. And for these people, our text served as a warning. God was saying to those people, look at this pagan. Look at this pagan king Nebuchadnezzar. Now this man, he didn't grow up in a Jewish family. He'd never been instructed in the Scriptures. Apart from his innate knowledge of God, you could hardly blame him for doing what he did. Then God says, look at what happened to him. God says, I laid him low. He had to live apart from civilization and from all things good. He had to live like an animal. And in due time, it brought him to his senses. 
This pagan king could come to his senses. Now what about you? You people of Israel, you've been given so much. You know so much about God and what He's like. And you too, you've been laid low through the exile. You've been sent away from everything you regard as good. And yet there's so many of you that just don't get it. This pagan king puts you to shame. In this way, God was speaking through Nebuchadnezzar to His own people in that day. God was earnestly trying to shake them up so that they would repent of their pride, that they would submit themselves to to Him and to Him alone. He wanted to vaporize the mirage of self on the throne. And for us as believers today, we could hardly read this passage without thinking of what Philippians 2 says about Christ and His humiliation. Another great king who was humbled. Philippians 2 verse 8 says that he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see the difference between Nebuchadnezzar and Christ? Nebuchadnezzar was humbled by God because of his sin. Eventually, his shame, his humiliation led him on the pathway to redemption. Even if he didn't have a saving faith, and we'll leave that question open because we don't know. Even if he didn't have a saving faith, though he was moving in the right direction. Christ humbled himself because of our sin, including our pride. Hebrews 12.2 reminds us that the cross was a source of shame. Remember, for somebody to die on a cross in the ancient world, nothing could be more shameful. Well, Hebrews 12.2 tells us that He took the shame of the cross for us. And His shame led us to redemption. Not merely moving us in the right direction, not merely making salvation potentially possible, but actually accomplishing the salvation of all of God's people. Christ humbled Himself, took the shame, but later He was lifted up and He was glorified. Today, He sits in glory at God's right hand. The pattern of His life is to be the pattern of we who are in Him by true faith. In this way, the story of Nebuchadnezzar teaches us to be who we are in Christ. It's a reminder and warning to humble ourselves before God and before one another. The Christian life, brothers and sisters, doesn't consist of building yourself up, bringing glory to yourself, being a glory hound. It's about being Christ-like and bringing the glory to God alone. Believers are to be recognized for their Christ-like humility and their lack of pride. We need that reminder, don't we? It can be said from the pulpit over and over again that pride is sinful. But yet there are always believers who somehow try to rationalize that it's acceptable to have pride. Or perhaps they just haven't really been convicted of this yet. 
Brothers and sisters, wherever you are on this, reflect and meditate on the words of 1 Peter 5.5. In 1 Peter 5.5, Peter is quoting Proverbs 3.34. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You could memorize those words. Not very difficult to do. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God specializes in bringing down the proud. So try and find one place in Scripture where God tells believers to take pride in themselves and what they have done. There's absolutely no pride for place for pride in the Christian life. That wouldn't fit with God opposing the proud. The proud. If you've got pride, God is going to oppose you. It doesn't fit with a Christian life. Pride means having yourself and others on the throne. In other words, pride is idolatry. And at its root, that's what Nebuchadnezzar was guilty of. He had placed himself on the throne of life, the universe, and everything. Well, sure, he was rightfully the king of Babylon. But he had no right to the eternal throne of everything. Only one person belongs on that throne, and that's God. And so it is for us today as well. As those who are in Christ, idolatry is to be something that we hate and forsake. And so whenever we well up with pride over anything today, we're missing the point of what it means to live in Christ. We're missing the point of the biblical pattern of living through humility and suffering one day to attain to the glory of God. Listen carefully. A life of humility in this age comes before exaltation and glorification in the age to come. Brothers and sisters, pride is the ancient serpent's poison. Let's repent of it by turning to the divine anti-venom. This poison's antidote, its anti-venom, is humility. A frame of mind where we have the proper estimation of who we really are. And that humility expresses itself in two ways. The first way is seen explicitly in our text, and it's the way of all-out praise for God. We give credit where credit is due at every moment and every opportunity. The second way is closely related, and it's the way of thankfulness. Just imagine what it would sound like if every time you're tempted to say the word proud or pride, you would say thankful or thankfulness instead. Just imagine what it would look like for you to be directing the attention away from yourself, away from man, and pointing all the attention to God from whom all blessings flow. In Romans 15.4, we read these words. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. In our passage, we read about the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar. In Matthew 12, the Lord Jesus spoke of another pagan ruler, the Queen of Sheba. He spoke of the Queen of Sheba arising at the judgment with his generation 
to point the finger at them and to condemn them. Well, rather than let Nebuchadnezzar's letter stand against us at the last judgment, let it be one of those passages spoken of in Romans 15. A passage that has taught us. Let it be a passage that has encouraged us to endure with our life in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, have the hope eternal. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.